What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Robert Breedlove. Robert is the co-founder and CEO of Parallax Digital, a digital asset hedge fund and digital securities advisory firm. Um, Robert is also uh, an avid writer. He's put out some great articles on Medium that uh, many of, I'm sure, I'm sure many of you have read, uh, have been spread around the community on Twitter. Uh, quite broadly. One of my uh, favorites is a three-part series, and it's called Money, Bitcoin, and Time. If you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend you head on over to Robert's Medium page and uh, and give it a read, because it's just it's a really nice kind of holistic uh, view, commentary on, uh, well, those three things, money, Bitcoin, and time. Uh, lots of food for thought. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Robert was also recently featured on the Real Vision Gold versus Bitcoin series. Um, and if you haven't checked that out, I also recommend you do um, because Real Vision has, putting out, has been putting out some fantastic uh, content well, for several years now, but really seem to be hitting a stride and doing lots um, of videos and uh, content around Bitcoin. And this Bitcoin versus Gold series, I think, is highly relevant for the times we're in. It's a comparison that comes up a lot. There's people stuck in on both sides. And so uh, we're only, I, th I think they've only kind of partially released the series so far. I think they're maybe halfway through. Um, but Robert was one of the people interviewed for the series. Uh, and I checked it out yesterday. It was awesome. Uh, so if you're interested in that discussion, then uh, head on. Actually, Real Vision has a, a insane deal right now where it's a dollar for, I think, three months of access. Um, so if you're at all interested in that issue or, you know, financial, economic, monetary, commentary, interviews, that kind of stuff, then uh, seems seems like a no-brainer. Anyways, in this discussion, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not even going to try to uh, summarize it. A lot about Bitcoin, of course, a lot about personal sovereignty, some history, some philosophy, just a little bit of everything. Robert's a super cool guy, and, um, you know, I just decided... Let's start chatting and, as usual, let's start chatting and uh, see where it goes. So anyways, this is the further discussion portion. If you want to hear the rapid fire uh, episode, uh, that's available now too, so you can check it out. Later. Quick correction for the Real Vision deal that's on right now. It's not a dollar for three months. It's a dollar per month for three months. Yeah, that's it. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, man. Let's uh, let's just jump into this. First of all, I really enjoyed uh, the series of Medium articles that you did. I read some of them and listened to some of them from Guy at uh, the Crypto Economy, and uh, I really like just how 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 kind of complete but not overly detailed the approach is. Not to say it's not detailed, but you know, in Bitcoin, like you know, a lot of people can get really lost in the weeds, or we we all probably can if we are allow ourselves. And uh, I just thought that. Uh, it was a really concise, kind of informed uh, summary of what this thing is and what it represents. And then I did listen to your uh, podcast on Citizen Bitcoin as well, and I pretty much the same feeling about that. So I'm not exactly sure where to start because I don't just want you to tell me, like, why do you care about Bitcoin? But there's one thing. This is, this is the place we'll start because I thought it was an interesting comment. And you, you said that sound money... Uh, represented in the form of Bitcoin is a resurgence of or represents a resurgence of ancient wisdom emerging in the world. And then you compared it to things like diet and yoga and Ayurvedic medicine. And, 
you know, kind of more traditional th- themes, more traditional forms of wisdom uh, emerging in the world. So why don't we just get, get kicked off with that and we can see where it leads. Straight into the deep end. Yeah, let's do it, man. Why else are we uh, here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been thinking about that a little bit lately, and it's, again, very formative. Um, but I, the way I look at it is that we, you know, as, as biological organisms, are complex systems. And we're actually, uh, at our core, we are digital, right? Uh, DNA is digital information that we pass on from generation to generation. Um, and it feels like for the now that we've entered this digital age, where we've figured out how, how to replicate sort of the uh, the complexity that is biology or is an economy or is um, you know other complex systems, meteorology, things like this, that we actually have for the first time in history these tools that themselves are complex systems. So we're we're accessing uh, ancient wisdom in a way that is iterating very rapidly in the world, like through mediums such as this, a podcast, um, or medium blogs, or, uh, you know, all the, the plethora of essays and cheap content media that's available on the internet. It just seems to be sparking this reawakening. Um, and that's sort of the, I guess the mental side of it. And then there's just a general feeling. I just feel like people are desiring to be more woke these days. <laughs> I mean, it's cool to be woke. It's cool to be uh, in a spiritual pursuit or trying to you know, work on your own shit and really uh, see yourself for who you are. And I don't know, I think it's an exciting time to be alive and that's, it has something to do with the digital age, something to do with the tools we have made sort of remaking us as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree very much and I think it's interesting on a couple of things you said, one is I do think there's this like growing movement of people that, you know, you use the term woke, whatever, however we want to describe people that are just kind of, you know, really, uh, really concerned with, you know, optimizing uh, their lives, how their brains function, yep. uh, you know, the, the things that they do from which they derive meaning, like they really... You know, they want to know what's going on and use that knowledge to squeeze as much out of this life as they can. And then, of course, you have the flip side of the equally extreme group of people that seem to be completely uh, not oblivious, but disinterested in those sorts of pursuits. And you, that may be the, the cause of some of the fracturing we're seeing in, in society and culture in many parts of the world today. Yeah, it, that actually makes me think of another thought was that social media, again, a digital tool, is sort of acting as this amplifier of human nature. Like on one half of the chasm, you have what I call the asses and abs crew, right? Like right, right. Selfies and getting a lot of validation and likes and dopamine hits. But then on the other side of social media, you have these people uh, divulging and sharing these very personal journeys, very traumatic experiences they've been through, whether it's abuse or drug addiction or anything of that sort, the stories that are really hard to share publicly. And people are, are gravitating towards that. You know, people like that, are, that have gone through similar situations are identifying with these people and saying, hey, I'm not the only one going through this. And they're finding support sort of in the community. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it's, it is interesting. Again, it's kind of like the tools themselves are amoral. Right? They can be used for good or bad. You can 
use a knife to slice apples or, or go stab someone. Uh, and I think you see that with, with digital tools, specifically social media, as, as creating that effect. To your point about uh, social media, I mean, we really are in so many ways today in society in uncharted waters, you know, and this, this constant digital mirror that we get, not, not only digital mirror, but digital periscope, you know, into everybody else's lives as well as a reflection back of our own, you know, it's really, I mean, it's unprecedented. So it's impossible to predict the effect that this is going to have on people's minds. And I mean, it's funny that we were so kind of nonchalant about it. Not People are aware of it and there's, you know, discussion about rates of depression and how social media might be related to that but like still we're we're, it's not like people are freaking out about the fact that we've this like explosion of ability to communicate and not just communicate you know communicate everything basically and and the effects that that may have uh, on society and of course you've got this you know big privacy discussion now because you put out that much personal stuff in the digital realm and nobody's considering privacy at the beginning of it, or very few people. And so, of course, there's opportunistic companies more than happy to take up all that data and package it up and try to monetize it in some way. And I guess this does come back to, you know, Bitcoin in some way, because Bitcoin is, is especially for non-tech-oriented you know tech oriented people, it's kind of forcing them or, or inspiring them to look at you know, their digital lives in a different way and, and try to and start to consider things like privacy more. But I don't know, like, I I keep oscillating back and forth to are we going into a future that's, you know, where everyone is in more control of their data and more private? Or are we going into a future where just things are so blown open in terms of transparency, because we're just going to be ever more, more connected, that, you know, privacy, privacy no longer exists? Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that internal debate. I'm, I'm not entirely sure myself. It seems to me like it's probably healthy to just operate under the assumption that you're always on camera and mic'd up and that's just the way of the world. Yeah. Uh, um, but that's easier said than done, clearly. You know, you, everyone tends to be one person maybe at home versus out in public, and depending on the different roles they fill. Uh, and I guess one of the things too that excited me originally in Bitcoin, um, I guess before I was as much of a Bitcoin maximalist was this idea of owning your data again and, you know, the individual actually benefiting from the monetization of their data versus, you know, today we have these pure data monopolies, as you said, opportunists that came in, uh, centralized and siloed control and distribution of all this data explosion and uh you know they've become in some senses the new overlords right we've always had these robber barons with every sort of uh wave of innovation and this is just the latest expression of that um but i think there's some promise and without going too deep into the technical weeds that i'm not prepared to talk about there's some promise in the technology that facilitates bitcoin i think to be applied to other domains right where we could sort of decentralize or disrupt these data monopolies at some point. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, as to when, <laughs> time is the most difficult thing to predict in this environment because everything's exponential and things come out of nowhere and uh, just makes it for, makes for really exciting living. Absolutely. I think it might, you know, on that point, it might be the case that things 
continue to, I mean, I can't see an environment in which our lives don't become more and more transparent and we're not expressed through different, more and more media. We don't have, you know, VR avatars and we're not sharing more of our personal lives and all that kind of stuff. But maybe the big difference will just be that we are the ones that benefit from whatever output of our data we we choose to express, you know, whereas before it was just like, you know, throw it all out there and let somebody else do something with it. Maybe now we'll be the beneficiaries of it. You know, we'll start to we're starting to recognize that it is valuable. And and there's other considerations like, you know, uh, who gets access to it and stuff like that. But it's it's squirrely times, man. And just a final point on what you're saying about kind of, well, the resurgence of ancient wisdom. You know, we all have, you know, to make an analogy to the ancient world, we all have the Library of Alexandria in our pockets, right? And much more than that, of yeah. course. And yes. it's, I mean, I, 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 I do get lost in the weeds often just kind of daydreaming about, like, what is the implications of everybody in the world effectively or, you know, a big portion of the world having access to the world's history of information, and being updated in real time of the new information coming on to the, you know, the, the, coming on to the world. And yes. uh, as you said, I mean, I think th- that's why we see so many people that there's, there's a never-ending stream of information for you to kind of chew on and, and decide which is the right stuff to integrate into your life. And I know this may be way off base, um, but, you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with, like, uh, like ancient secret rites, like the the mysteries of Eleusis and uh, other similar things, where like kind of the, the they are these highly secretive, exclusive um, ceremonies and rites reserved for the elite of society, political, financial, that sort of thing. And um, I feel like that's now being offered to everybody because there's not going to like how many secrets are left. You know, information is being so democratized that we're all kind of in a, this scenario where we the whole all the information is laid out and it's it's but for us to choose how we want that information to impact our lives via how we integrate it and express it through our own you know through ourselves yeah i i agree i like the the library of alexandria being in our pocket that's a, a good example and it, it's it seems like we've almost compressed space and time, right? All the knowledge of humanity that's been collected across time and is now currently being collected across space, and it's compressed into our pocket, right? And we're able to, with our digits in the digital age, to access it freely and openly and quickly, and it just accelerates these feedback loops that are inherent to all natural systems, right? Including, uh, you know, the economy, actually our own biology, people are changing the way they eat, exercise, and train. And it makes, and it also puts it on these rails that are, you know, I call the internet this universal engine for knowledge exchange. So now that we've pulled all of that wisdom, historic wisdom, into the present, put it in everyone's pocket, and then we put it on these rails that allow us to iterate on it super quickly. Uh, It's almost like the, I forget who made the comparison, but like, this, the global cerebrum is waking up, right? We've become a global mind, and we're, the hive mind is starting to awaken uh, in some respect. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the ancient rituals, actually. I've, I've heard of them, but uh, I think that makes sense. There's just 
it's increasingly difficult and inefficient to keep things in the dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, I think just operating on the premise that, um, you know, you've got one life to live, you should live it on purpose and you should live as if everyone's watching. Yeah. And I think this may be, you know, part of the uh, reason why people are so attracted to Bitcoin is because when you, you have all this information and you go through it, you know, we, we all take the information that we gain and we look out in the world and we see how it fits onto it and we see, you know, where there's uh, blind spots and holes and what needs to be upgraded and improved. And we do that for ourselves and we do that for the exterior world. And, uh, you know, all that information and the, the, the speed with which it travels, I think, has led a lot of us to say, like, well, one of the, the, the big things, one of the big issues with the world is definitely the monetary standard and the, you know, the, the you know, government money for, for an all-encompassing term. And, you know, if we could, if we could change that, if we could have something else, then... I, because I guess what we're all seeking is, is you know, is, is freedom. You know, we want the freedom to be who we are, to be able to express ourselves however we want, to be able to engage with who and what we want. And even though most of us on a daily basis, even under this current system, I mean, we're pretty, pretty darn free, a lot of us. But we see this big monolithic thing, the cap kind of on that. And I think all that information that's been so easy to acquire has really accelerated the process of seeing things with greater clarity and when a solution like bitcoin has emerged thinking damn this this thing could really be uh could really have a big effect if we could replace it with or we, if we could replace the existing you know paradigm with this paradigm the the freedom that that would enable could be tremendous and i know you've written about that a bit so why don't you you know why don't you yeah write on that? absolutely i uh I like to say that you know the cornerstones of capitalism, and to be very clear, capitalism gets somewhat of a bad rap today. People think it has to do; it's re responsible for the the ills uh, that many people face, but it's just not true, right? So, yeah. the, the cornerstones of capitalism really are rule of law, so that you can resolve disputes effectively, nonviolently, preferably, because that's expensive and messes stuff up. Uh, private property rights, so that you know what you hold and own, your relationship between your, uh, you know, a person and an asset is respected by others. And then I would add, you know, the third leg of that is monetary policy, right? What is the monetary system? That is the economic water that facilitates all of it. And here in the U.S., we have, you know, rather relatively strong and reliable rule of law. We're, we have problems just like everywhere else. Private property rights are especially strong here relative to other countries. But monetary policy is the same across the board worldwide. You know, it's the monetary policy we've dictated to the world at the conclusion of World War II. And that is we get to decide how much there is. And another good way to think about this is if you consider that money is really just a list of who owns what, any single party that can rewrite that list or amend it in their favor is effectively violating private property rights. You are reallocating or redistributing claims on productive assets from whoever's using the money into the hands of who can produce the money. So literally inflation in that sense is a violation of private property rights. So it's important to take that perspective that of those three legs, we really only have two in the whole world, in the free world. We've never really seen the third leg materialize uh, other than when gold was uh, dominant worldwide. 
uh, I think by restoring, you know, giving us this strong, reliable measure of value and mechanism for storing wealth and value that we create with our productive efforts, it enhances, it gives capitalism that third leg to really uh, enhance our productivity worldwide. And at the end of the day, that's what economics is all about. The more productive we become, the cheaper things are, the you know less expensive it is to live. But right now, we have this giant parasite on our back, effectively, which is the shareholders of central banks worldwide, and they're extracting wealth from global citizens. And if you remove that, you eliminate that monopoly and restore us to a free market and actually let actual, true free market capitalism take hold, I think you usher the world into an era unseen. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, even the gold standard eras of the past, I mean, it's, it's always been susceptible to some form of manipulation. It's far more resilient to manipulation than, you know, a fiat money standard. But there's been debasement and clipping and even when it was a pure standard, you know, like the, the governments would hold a large portion of it or they'd be the, cust the custodians of it. So, you know, you still have counterparty risk and ways for it to be manipulated. And, you know, one of the reasons that I'm so excited about Bitcoin, and I, obviously many people share this, is it's literally the first time in human history where we have something that, uh, you know, that nobody can manipulate, that it, you know, it could, it could provide a, a extreme upgrade in a monetary media from anything we've, we've ever had in the past. And as you said, if you look at those, you know, periods of time when the, the gold standard was broadly used and more or less not manipulated, it, it did usher in these great areas of, uh, of, of humanity. And so, you know, what will we get as a result of adopting a different monetary standard? Because, you know, the, the, the monetary medium that we use is the foundation on which society is built, right? You know, I ask the question a lot, and I'll ask you later, you know, how do you define money? Uh, and for me, money, uh, money is just the, the primary organizing mechanism for human economic interaction. You know, I know mm -hmm. there's various definitions, but, and I, you know, I made a video on this before, but the, the, the attributes of the money will dictate the structures that you get in society. And so whatever deficiencies or whatever attributes are, are non-beneficial in the money, structures will have to be erected around it to compensate for that deficiency. And Absolutely. so, you know, the, 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 the more sound, the more, the more the money has the attributes that you, you know, you want and need and that facilitate the, the, the economic interaction, the less structures have to be built up around it. And of course, this is the primary threat of Bitcoin, right? It's because it actually disintermediates so many different levels and structures of society that we have. And that's why the powers that be are probably not going to be too enthusiastic about adopting it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things. And what I find, because in, in, the, in the U.S. and in Canada and many areas of the world today, socialism is starting to kind of rear its ugly head back up. And as you said, you know, capitalism gets kind of a bad rap. And to me, it's clear as day that it's not, we don't need less capitalism. We need more capitalism, you know, and yes. I think they, they make the mistake in thinking that capitalism and every quote unquote, everything having a price is a, a negative thing. Uh, and I think they don't understand that when you combine free markets with socialist state or socialized money, it's money controlled by the state, 
you'll actually get dramatically more inequality versus if you combine free markets with also free money, you get a much more even, but of course not equal, but more even prosperity. And uh, it's weird to me today, and maybe you can comment on this because you're actually there. Why do you think, do you think it's ignorance or they just know not to touch it? But why do so many of the politicians uh, that are around today, nobody mentions the money? Nobody. Uh, I would say, to put it politely, they are in bed together, right? Central bankers and politicians. Uh, banks have captured a lot of the political infrastructure of the world. Um, and this, it goes hand in hand with the, you know, I said this earlier, I tweeted this a couple of days ago. I said that money is the means and ends of all warfare. Sure. Literally, every war is only fought with money. That's the number one reason, uh, you know, someone's defeated. They run out of money or uh, they strike a deal. And then, two, every time you go to war, like country to country, they're specifically targeting their central bank or their oil, like some other, it is the money that they're, they're seeking. And... I guess it is, you know, Hayek wrote about this in Road to Serfdom, that if we have any socialistic element inside of our political structure, that it is, it has this irresistible gravity, this irresistible pull, that um, by operating according to one single unified plan that is beyond compromise, it actually pulls these other free elements in, where people say, you know, I can't make as money as much money being a doctor or an architect doing something productive for society. I make more money being a bureaucrat, supporting this plan, uh, oppressing people, and the the whole thing, really, it just it infects society. So, I think you see socialism rearing its ugly head again because we have socialized money, socialistic money, yeah. and the only way. I think maybe it was Hayek too, the sly roundabout way to take it out of their hands. That's the only way it's ever going to work. No one's ever going to relinquish this power. If you hold the money printing machine, the the system that has institutionalized time theft from everyone else, you're not going to let that go. I, I, I don't care who you are, what kind of moral crusader you are, that power is going to corrupt you. It will corrupt your very human nature. And it, you know that apparatus of power really attracts those types of people, and it changes those types of people as they get closer to uh, to the control of that apparatus. So I think it, almost to save ourselves from our own uh, egoic failings, we have to have this sovereignty layer that's beyond us, this monetary sovereignty layer that we can't control. And that's what gold was, more or less, right? It's still physical. So violent coercion uh, kind of led to its centralization and ultimate manipulation that got us to the fiat standard we are today. But Bitcoin being you know, purely digital and informational is even further beyond reach. You know, it, it's, there's kind of these five qualities to money that really matter. There's divisibility, so you can subdivide it and trade and uh, price things. There's durability, so that it holds physical value across time. There's portability, so you can transmit that value across space. There's recognizability, 
so that you can transmit that value across consciousness. People need to be able to recognize it, know that the gold is real or the Bitcoin has been assayed or whatever the, the thing is, know that it's not counterfeit. And then, you know, most importantly, which is the anchor to time itself, is scarcity. And money as this mechanism for market pricing and trading time has to be anchored to the reality of time scarcity. So Bitcoin, you know, gold provided a lot of those functions well, but it was subject to this physical manipulation. Bitcoin takes the first few, so the, the durability, the divisibility, the portability, and the recognizability of information. So literally, information can be divided as deeply as possible. Clearly, it's very easy to recognize. Uh, it's very portable. It can go anywhere. Um, and whatever the, th the other one was. And he combined it with the scarcity, the absolute scarcity of time. So that's what makes Bitcoin this truly revolutionary monetary sovereignty layer that seemingly is beyond, mostly beyond the reach of, uh, of the state. And it's exciting because, you know, as, as Rothbard said, no attempt to reform the state has ever taken hold. None. Nothing has ever worked to hold back uh, the advance of the state. And this represents uh, a promise to to possibly do that. So it's that's what's exciting about Bitcoin. Yeah, and this is this. You know, I I totally agree, and I think that's because, like any attempt to you know change the nature of the state, ultimately has failed because the state is a manifestation of the money. The state is a manifestation of the money used. You're always going to need it if you use a certain type of money, even something yeah. like like gold. You're gonna you know you're gonna need someone to protect it in the store and all that kind of stuff. And you know that's I, we're all. I'm sure super excited about Bitcoin. We see that and we recognize it, and that's why we're here. Um, but a lot, you know, there's been a lot of conversations lately um, about how the state could could potentially stop Bitcoin. And so some people think, you know, they could try as they might, but they'll shoot themselves in the foot. It's not going to work. You know, jurisdictional arbitrage. You know, however it plays out, but they can't do it. And then there's other people that are much more uh, are on the other side of the the argument where they say, no, the state could just pass a law. And if, if someone puts a gun in your face and says, you know, burn your Bitcoin or I'm going to throw you in jail, how resistant are you going to be to to that? So what what's where do you fall on the, you know, kind of how could the government stop this thing if it gets to a point where I mean, it has to get to that point, right? You would think that ultimately that's the showdown. Uh, I don't know if you saw on Twitter today uh Gigi posted a piece on Medium called, I think, How Do You Stop Bitcoin or How Do Governments Kill Bitcoin, something like that. Yeah. And the whole article was, they don't. <laughs> it's just two words. So it was kind of a, <laughs> a joke. Uh, I thought it was <laughs> Got some good action on Twitter. I guess I would fall somewhere in the middle. Uh, and clearly you can't just pass a law and say, don't hold Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is just information. It's just a language. It's, you know, one, protect here in the U.S., protected by the First Amendment. Um, but two, even if the First Amendment was repealed, how in the hell do you enforce that? How do you regulate open source technology that is literally you can print the entire code base and transaction history on paper and send it on? Like, it's, it's very 
difficult to regulate. And if we look at uh, the history of the government and enforcing some of their, their arcane laws, you know, you look at cannabis, for instance, or any of the war on drugs, uh, it didn't slow things down, to say the least. Uh, it, the war on drugs just created these cartels that you know, fed on monopoly profits, but the, the distribution of drugs in this country is not, it's accelerated. Put a lot of, it put a lot of people in jail, though, right? Put a lot of people in jail, of course. And so, and not that that's a perfect analogy because there's clearly much higher stakes here yeah. you know, in the market money versus drugs, but the informational nature of it and, you know, the light speed with which this space develops in terms of custody technology and transmission and, uh, you know, even workarounds for the Internet. They've got, we've got Blockstream satellites. We've got mesh nets. Uh, it, I just don't see governments keeping up with that. And then when you layer in the aspect of self-interest, where you have, I think, Venezuela today discussing holding Bitcoin and Ethereum as reserve assets in their central bank, that triggers game theory at the nation-state level, right? If, if this country, Venezuela or whoever is holding Bitcoin, I, you know, as an adversary sitting across the table, cannot afford game theoretically to not also hold exposure to that asset. Because if this thing does work and he takes 100x or 1,000x on his balance sheet, then that jeopardizes my relationship with that other country. So when you, you couple in, I, it's just digital tech, it's breakneck speed evolution and then the self-interest aspect of Bitcoin. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's disruptive to the state. Course. I don't know how long it takes. I don't know what form it comes in. I don't know how violent it is. But over the long term, you see the state becoming more decentralized. You see the state actually competing for our citizenship, saying these are our tax rates. Here's our menu of services. They're actually competing to get people to immigrate to them. Yeah. Versus yeah. today, we are, you know, very. I would just say the the power dynamics very reversed. Most people feel like the state is this big, ugly, scary guy in the sky, uh, pretty much anywhere you live. So I think that power dynamic reverses in the digital age. Man, that would be such a cool dynamic, you know, competitive, you know, states competing for, you know, to attract citizens based on, you know, the services they provided, the laws they enforced, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, we'll find out, I guess, but it's, you know, I, I, I'm on the optimistic side and I'm on the side of, of, of kind of that you just mentioned where, you know, that maybe they'll they'll really try, but, you know, things could move very fast and they might find that it gets out of their out of their hands very quickly. You mm -hmm. know, but then I have a, a long conversation with someone like uh, Eric Voskuhl and, uh, you know, yeah. he's, he's like, well, all they got to do is write a law and, you know, the, the party could be over. And I'm like, eh, OK, so like I'm, I'm, I'm going back and forth. But I'm more on the side of, you know, I, I just don't see how this, this thing can be stopped. But it is also another reason why the, the current, you know, popularity of socialism is, is somewhat concerning. And maybe ultimately it doesn't matter, but, you know, any, any movements to increase state power certainly seems counterproductive at this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, another way to kind of think about that is that I'd say that Bitcoin converts electricity and self-interest into 
indisputable records, right? It's blockchain and expansion of its network. So again, it's, it is actively and economically incentivizing every human that interacts with it, right? And that holds true at every scale, individually, the community, the nation state. So that's a very powerful feedback loop that I don't see you passing a law in the physical world that it's going to do a lot to put a dent in it. Um, that being said, there's going to be a lot of barriers and artifices and laws passed to try and inhibit this thing along the way. But in the grand scheme of things, I, I tend to think it's going to uh, continue doing what it's been doing. Yeah. And, you know, maybe this is a good time to talk about what you want your role to be in, in kind of that new paradigm, you know, what you're doing now and what you see, see for yourself in the future. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. So I, I guess, you know, in my writing and in, in my speaking, I'm, I'm trying to distill these complex technical historic factors into a very clearly easily understood palatable format for people. Um, you know, getting back to one of your, your questions earlier, like what is money? And I, I have two definitions, if I may. One is the technical. It's, it's a technology for moving value across time and space uh, or space time, which they're the same thing as Einstein taught us, but that's an aside. And the, my other definition is a little more simple is that money is a metaphor for time. It is the tool we use to price and trade our time. Because at the end of the day, time is all, it is the ultimate bottleneck to economics. Like the price of everything, you know, natural resources, uh, everything that was here uh, on this planet, they have decreased in terms of human time necessary to produce them as we've become more productive. So money is meant to be anchored to time itself so that we can, we have this yardstick against which to measure everything else. Um, so I, in my role in this shifting paradigm, um, I'm a student. I, I read as much as I can. I've been very aggressively taking in all that I can. Um, and then I want to, you know, through my own lens, share it back and hopefully in a way that, uh, can penetrate minds far and wide. It's very uh, more clearly understood. Because um, again, as you said earlier, it's so easy to get lost in the woods here. This mm -hmm. this thing, you know, Bitcoin touches every domain, basically. And if you really go into the technical aspects, you're totally lost. Like that's a, a nightmare. Um, not a nightmare, it's very complex. And so I, yeah, I just want to be someone that helps others see the light, I guess. Right. And so as far as the, the work you're doing now, what like what role is that playing? Sure. So my company is Parallax Digital. Uh, we operate some crypto asset hedge funds. Uh, I serve as both the chief executive and the chief investment officer. Um, so there's a lot of uh, that educational role involved in those positions. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're also working on a consulting business focused on digital securities. So, And this is much more 
pioneering and exploratory. Um, the concept of actually taking the technology that wraps Bitcoin and wrapping everything else, you know, stocks, bonds, real estate, um, and figuring out how that makes things move faster, cheaper, better worldwide. But it, again, it rubs up against a lot of legal frameworks that are much more difficult to reform because they involve physical assets. Whereas Bitcoin is purely informational and digital, there's not anything anyone can do to stop it, right? You just kind of by holding your private keys, you are bucking the monopoly on money. That's much harder to do when it comes to real estate or, or shares in a company, things that are tangible. Right. Um, so ulti ultimately, it's a claim rather than, you know, a bearer asset, I guess. Exactly right. Yeah. So I think the path that it takes is that Bitcoin is reforming the state by sort of taking away its taxing ability over time, its seniorage rights. Um, and by that uh, change, the state becomes a little less relevant and maybe more open to adopting these other technologies uh, in the digital securities world. So it's a long game, but we're, we're trying to figure it out. And, uh, yeah, that's it. And so how receptive, you know, for the first part of that business, how receptive have, you know, clients been when you go to meet clients, pitch clients, educate them? What's the response these days versus, you know, a year ago, <laughs> two years ago? Uh, let's just say in 2017, we, you know, the interest was astronomical. It's catnip. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. Just it was order taking, I guess you would say. Right. And in 2018, uh, the the exact opposite, absolute ice cold out there. So uh, it was an interesting way to see FOMO and FUD up close and personal at a you know high net worth institutional family office level. Yeah. Um, yeah. And today it's warming up again. Uh, as one of my, my friends in Tennessee said, when you when the the food is thrown out into the water, the fish come back around, right? So I, I guess the the rebound, the market rebound in Bitcoin, has attracted some of the fish again. Did that, um, you know, in 2018? Did you have to have those quarterlies or biannual sit downs with with clients and have try to explain this? And if so. You know, were they receptive to that and understood that it was cyclical or thought like, Jesus, I got involved in, in a, a tulip bubble? Like, what were those conversations like? Uh, there was a lot of pain, for sure. Um, you know, the market as a whole was drew, drew down 90%, I believe, in 2018. So even out, you know, well outperforming the market, you're still getting your ass kicked uh, relative to most other markets. So it was... Uh, a, a trying experience to say the least. Um, we've, you know, been very fortunate to have uh, a very good investor base. They've been supportive on balance, but there have definitely been uh, concerns and uh, people, you know, voicing their concerns very loudly. So um, I, I am grateful actually to have gone through it. I think it, it really hardens you as an entrepreneur to go through those painful experiences. And uh, it feels good to see the market doing what you know we think it should be doing. Because here we saw we see say Bitcoin hash rate right the value going up the entire time while its price is is falling precipitously. And you know at some point 
you start to question your own beliefs and you're like, what's going on here? When is this thing going to stop? But, um, so it felt good to see that, that materialize, that rebound materialize as we, we thought it should. Right. And where do you think we are now? Is this a, a genuine rebound or was this just a, you know, a tease? Where do you think we're at in terms of price? Uh, using our very limited sample size of a decade and about, you know, four of these cycles, um, the bull market began in late April, 2019. Um, and that's when the 50 day crossover the 200 day moving average. And so for, for context, the last time that happened was July 15. We saw Bitcoin bottom around 200. After that uh, 50 broke to 200, it, it broke up to $600, so it tripled in price pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. It then corrected down 50% to 300, uh, and I believe that was in August of 15. And from there, it went on this you know 27-month bull run to 20,000. So from July 15 to December 17, you go from $200 to 20,000. That's a 100x in 29 months. That was the last cycle. Uh, this cycle, we bottomed at 3,200 in December of 18. Uh, it look, again looks like the bull market started in earnest in April of 19, and we had this run. We had this run up to 13,000, right? So from 3,200 to 13, uh, which is even a larger magnitude than the last run. You know, instead of tripling it, it's almost a little more than quadrupled, actually. And now we've had this correction back down to roughly 50%. It's hit in the mid-sevens. Um, so if we're using last cycle as our proxy, I think we're right there. We're in August 15. We're sitting, you know, at the time when it was sitting at 300, today it's, say, 8,000. And I, you know, given all of the macroeconomic conditions, QE, infinity, uh, this race to the bottom in currencies worldwide, this... Uh, you know, the Lindy effect, people seeing Bitcoin, that learning more about it all the time, the knowledge is becoming more and more diffused into society. And then you have these institutional, uh, the institutional architecture between the crypto asset world and traditional finance, where you're going to have much larger capital pools coming into the space. Uh, I think we're set up for a really big bull run. Um, you know, we people throw price targets out all the time and say, it's not financial advice, and I, I guess I will do the same. But you know, we have an internal target of 120,000 in the next 36 months. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not certain that we're right, but uh, that would be very conservative in context of history. Right. And do you think the next bull run will be? You know, if we say 2017 was retail-led, do you think the next one will be institutional? Um, or a bit of both. Certainly going to be a bit of both, but I think there is a an inflection point for the institutions, and it's going to be driven by price. Say it's fifty thousand. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin breaks fifty thousand, and you have this you know perfectly inelastic supply curve that's not giving any ground. The more demand there is for Bitcoin. It's only being expressed in its price, right? That's one of the beautiful things about it. That is that exacerbates the FOMO big time. Because yeah. as people are piling in, the price is all demand increases are being fully expressed in price. And people start to chase this thing. So 
I think that psychological paradigm holds at the institutional level. At it, say say it's fifty thousand Bitcoin, um, and then you see you know large capital pools start to take twenty five basis points, fifty basis points, a one percent exposure to Bitcoin, and that's when things get truly bonkers because <laughs> that is the majority of the capital in the world yeah. uh, sitting inside these vehicles. So. Yeah, again, that architecture being there, the channels between traditional financial world and Bitcoin uh, is a very powerful enabler of this bull run. And it's still, I mean, if you've been in here for a while, I mean, it's amazing how big it's gotten. But as we all know, I mean, $200 billion in the context of, you know, global money and investments and investment products is like literally nothing. (laughs) Literally nothing. (laughs) I think the Fed has been injecting 75 to 100 billion a day into the repo markets the past few weeks. I mean, 200 billion is nothing. Um, what do you make of the, the the current situation? Because you know, in 2006, seven, I was like, "This is all fucked." You know, <laughs> this is this is going down, gold and silver. You know, because obviously Bitcoin wasn't around then. And uh, here we are 10 years later, 12 years later, um, and it's been able to be propped up. You know, and I know you said right off the bat that timing is the, the hardest thing to predict. But what do you make of just the current situation of the amount of negative rates and, uh, you know, how much money is being pumped into the system? What's your opinion on all that? I, a, a macro level, believe we are in the death throes of this monetary policy experiment um again zooming all the way out it's we've had money more or less in society for five thousand years only the past 100 have we had this true experiment called fiat which really didn't begin until 1971 we went on to a true fiat basis mm-hmm. uh, where we had we've completely and entirely severed money's anchor to time and that has just led to these runaway market distortions, this increasingly volatile and violent boom and bust business cycle, uh, of which you know the Great Recession of 2008 was the latest expression. And here we are again. We're, the, we're at historically overpriced markets in basically every dimension, right? PE, uh, EBITDA, enterprise value, anything you can think of. Uh, we're also historically indebted. We're also printing money at a historic pace. Every, the thing is coming unraveled before our eyes. Uh, there's a great account on Twitter, Paranoid Bull. I think he's been beating this drum for years. And again, it's impossible to say when, like what sparks uh, the implosion, but... It seems like it's a powder keg. It's, yeah, it is, I, I don't see how you reverse it, you know? It, it just, it's so far gone at this point. Is, is Bitcoin even ready to, you know, to play the role it needs to play? <sighs> No, I don't. I mean, it can be. Yes, you know, your, your fees and the blockchain are going to go through the roof and it's going to be a, a crazy stampede and confusing and all of these things. Uh, the consumer tech just isn't there. The consumer facing tech, it's still very complicated to use. And, you know, the analogy is mid 90s Internet, right? right? Dial up, whatever. It's just hard to use, frankly. So. In one sense, yeah, the technology, the, the backbone is there. It can support, it can support final settlement across the network of all central banks in the world today. 
However, <laughs> actually creating that transition, you know, transitions are inherently bloody and complicated. So, yes, the, the, the backbone can, but I don't think the, the interface is there for most people to be comfortable with it. Do you give any time to thinking how this, this transition might occur? You know, you just mentioned the changes and transitions are usually kind of bloody and uncomfortable. I know it's not a, a fun thing to think about, but do you give any thought to that? Hmm. You know, I do think about it. Um, I would just recommend a book. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners have read it. Um, but if you haven't, you should go pick out a, pick up a copy of The Sovereign Individual. Uh, it was written uh, 20, 25 years ago, and it predicted the, that microprocessing and uh, the digital age would subvert the nation state over time. And a lot of the perspectives through which they look at this change in the world are sort of coming to pass. Again, it's written 25 years ago. They had a, a prediction for an anonymous digital cash. So just to give you an idea of their prescience. Just go read that. Uh, it's hard to say how it's going to unfold, but you know, take a real deep, close look at history, and that's the best way you're going to get an idea of what could happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's when such momentous change is on the horizon. It's as you said. It, we we have a hard time kind of conceptualizing exponential change. You know. Um, mm. But when it's on the horizon, like it seems, even though objectively you might think all signs point to that, but to actually convince yourself and believe that it's going to transpire that way, and then the the accompanying like lifestyle or behavior changes or preparations that you need to make, I mean, there just seems to always be a gulf there. It's like the status quo is so. Uh, it's so you know comforting that yeah. we, no matter what we see objectively, we won't make the changes until we're forced to, you know. And then obviously Bitcoiners are ahead of the curve in that respect, but probably not on all dimensions, you know. But most people are possibly on none. I agree completely. And there's a quote by Machiavelli. I'm going to paraphrase. So I don't know the actual quote, but he says essentially that. One of the greatest failings of man is to not prepare for the tempest when things are calm, right? When, when peacetime pervades and things are good and you've got freedom and money and everyone's uh, flowing nicely in society, you should be preparing for the worst. Um, and I think that is just some timeless wisdom that, again, people should, should heed. Are there any you know, particular ways that you prepare for the worst or have prepared for the worst? Uh, yes, uh, not, not something I'd like to go into great detail on, but you know, again, read, read that book. I think <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll help everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, two, two more things before we break into some of the rapid fires, but what, you know, I keep coming back to this issue and I think it's just because my tune has changed on it so dramatically since you know earlier in my life but the because and the gun debate is a you know a very emotionally charged and seemingly Im 
important debate, especially in America these days. I mean, the, which is which is almost concerning in itself because it's not even a, de a debate in most other parts of the world. You know, it's it's, yeah. a, it's a given that you know people basically shouldn't have guns or or, or shouldn't have a certain type or, or a certain number. Um, and I've been giving it a lot more consideration consideration lately because I've always always on the other side. I was like, well, why do you know why do people need guns? Yeah. But I think as you start to game out how a transition might occur from one type of government and system and monetary standard to another, you begin to realize that, you know, uh, just like, you know, the, the way you protect your digital sovereignty, you've got to have things in place to protect your physical sovereignty. Mm. And, uh, you know, that makes the, the debate a lot more meaningful. And, you know, at the end of the day, I guess it comes down to, do you want only one group of people to have the means to exercise force? I mean, that's, exactly. it's, it's pretty simple, right? Do, do you think only a, one group of people in society should have the means of force, or do you think everybody should have it? And, and what can you reasonably expect and predict to happen if there's an imbalance of power of that kind? I mean, we've got lots of examples throughout history. I, it's, it's amazing that they go unnoticed in, in these, uh, or unarticulated in these debates. But, you know, what happens when there's an imbalance of power? Well, the people with power generally <laughs> exercise it over the people that don't. Right, right. Uh, that is a very, certainly a very contentious topic. I, you know, having grown up in Tennessee, um, been shooting guns my entire life. Um, I, I guess I stopped short when we're talking about regulating. Uh, firearms is it just I guess in general the, the this movement is we're moving away from the the importance of political consensus frankly even if you want to regulate and ban guns well what, we 3d print guns right, now. right. so it, it becomes more of a question of do you want to be exposed to an asymmetry and a power dynamic right do you want to be caught without protection or do you want to be protected in case some shit happens um and i know that's it's a very sensitive subject in this country in this world uh but i think you know a lot of the gun violence is an expression of that asymmetry often yeah so i uh you know i it's just important that everyone sort of keeps their own best interests in mind and don't not uh relying on the government or whoever to protect you or come and save you. Like you need to take charge of your own sovereignty, your own life and deal with your own shit, frankly. Yeah. That's just how I approach life. And, you know, we've got to make decisions that are, are not founded in emotional responses. You know, how, mm -hmm. you know, as, as rational as those re emotional responses may be, you know, making decisions predicated on that is, is not going to result in a scenario and situation that benefits us. You know, as, as a result of this debate and wanting to be more informed, I, I looked into it a bit and I came across a term that I'd, I'd never come across before, and it's called uh, democide. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term. I can't remember the author who, who popularized it and, and did this statistical work and analysis. Um, but it's basically, um, democide is like, you know, deaths as a result of uh, state force, non-conflict, non so non-war related state force, you know, mm. just, you know, basically the state uh, killing, 
its its citizens. Um, it's brutality. Yeah, and I think in the in the 20th century, I'm going to get the exact number wrong, but I over 200 million, I think, like one maybe it was 170, 200 million, and. So if we go back to that kind of, if we bring data to the, the argument, you say, and I, again, I don't have the figures, but just in terms of trying to bring some sense to this, it's like, well, let's look at how many, you know, gun-related deaths um, occurred in the 20th century by, you know, gun your general, you know, citizen-on-citizen citizen gun violence. And then let's look at the, the way in which the state has used force over that same period of time. And you say which one inspires you more to, or sorry, which, you know, are you not kind of convinced that it's important to have a check and balance on, mm. on state power when, it, when it's so apparent at the ways in which that power has been abused in the 20th century? Like, that was a big convoluted way of saying that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, people don't have an appreciation for how state power has kind of gone awry during that period right. of time. Absolutely. Uh I think it's Rothbard who says, you know, the, a government is the apparatus of violence and coercion, something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. Uh, it is a private enterprise. Uh, you know, it, there may be some representations that it's serving the public good, but at the end of the day, it's whoever is holding the reins to power. They're operating in their own self-interest. And if they're exercising this monopoly on violence or monopoly on money to benefit themselves disproportionately at the expense of everyone else. Uh, that is a reality you should be mindful of. So, um, yeah, I think we're just very enfeebled, maybe, a little bit, uh, as a result of these big centralized states. I think a lot of people just assume that... Um, the services that have been provided will sort of continue to be provided and the protections they've been afforded will always be there. And, um, it just, it's softening a bit to people. For and sure, for sure. I would, um, you know, encourage you not, not to become soft. Yeah. I think that's well put. And I think people becoming soft is very clearly a result of, you know, uh, kind of have of this nanny state mentality where you delegate so many responsibilities and, and other things to the state. Of course, you're going to get people that, uh, well, as an abdication of that responsibility, don't take it upon themselves to make themselves more resilient, let's say, in, in whatever capacity yes. it might be. Um, all right, man, before we do the rapid fire, is there anything that, you know, has been on your mind lately, you're spending a lot of mind juice on that you're, it's intriguing you? that we haven't touched on? Uh, I'm working on a piece right now that's sort of meant to communicate the momentousness of Bitcoin to uh, the macro hedge fund manager sphere. Uh, a few of the guys are really starting to get it, uh, like Raul Powell, uh, he's been very outspoken about it, um, a few other guys, but I, um, I think that's the next big, uh, Awakening too, or people in you know at the heart of the traditional financial world seeing that this thing is uh, to be taken seriously. Yeah. So yeah. I'm thinking a lot about kind of how to speak their lingo and how to communicate it uh, in that way. So you were just uh, on a Real Vision uh, show, right? You were talking about gold versus Bitcoin. 
Yeah, so I appeared, uh, we did the filming late last month. I think it airs sometime middle of this month. And, yeah, from what I'm told, he's putting together uh, an expert panel of, like, you know, guys that are proponents of gold versus guys that are proponents of Bitcoin. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Cool. What's up, guys? That's the end of the further discussion episode with Robert. If you want to hear the rapid fire episode where I ask Robert the standard set of uh, rapid fire questions and then some word associations at the end, that's available now also. Later.